So welcome to the 15th in our series of Urban Transport Next conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. And for those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands and all the other major metro areas as well, serving over 20 million people. And as well as being a body that thinks about what's next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can and do learn collectively from these events. I'm really pleased that so many people have signed up to take part in this event on the future of streets, uh, what they should look like, who they're for, how do we make the best trade-offs. And we really couldn't have a better panel for this topic. We have Professor Peter Jones. Peter is Professor of Transport and Sustainable Development at the UCL Centre for Transport Studies. He was Scientific Coordinator for the CREATE project on changing trends in urban mobility and future city challenges, and also for the recently completed MORE project that has developed processes and tools for design generation, stakeholder engagement, modelling and appraisal intended to improve the design and operation of road space on urban main roads. Peter advises the European Commission and a number of major cities, states and national governments around the world on transport policy issues. We also have John Dale. John is Director of Urban Movement, a consultancy specialising in transport planning and the design of urban streets and spaces with a transport MSc from Imperial UCL and a background in traffic engineering. He has 38 years of professional experience, having first worked in transport consultancy and then at the London Borough of Newham. Um, he joined Design Practice Urban Initiatives in 1996 and founded Urban Movement in 2011. John is the author of the Urban Transport Group's recent report on future streets. And your chair is Nicola Kane, Head of Strategic Planning, Insight and Innovation at Transport for Greater Manchester. She spends most of her time thinking about what the future might hold as her teams have been working to develop and deliver a long-term strategy for Greater Manchester, covering the period to 2040. She's a Chartered Town Planner, Qualified Transport Planning Professional, and joined TFGM in 2014 after 15 years working in consultancy. Nicola was awarded Transport Planner of the Year by the Transport Planning Society in 2017. So... Uh, you can also be part of this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting uh, your questions, keep them short and sharp, by the Zoom questions box. You can also vote for your favourite question. Um, we will be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call, and you can join in by Twitter using the hashtag. Uh, hashtag UTG next. That's hashtag UTG next. And with that, I'll hand over to our chair. Brilliant. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, and it's lovely to be here today and a real pleasure to have an hour to chat to John and Peter about um, our future streets. Um, so I'm going to dive straight in and Jonathan's done all the introductions, which um, saves me that job. Um, and um, ask Peter and John about how they got interested in, in streets and kind of what, what drew you to that agenda. Um, and I was thinking about this from my, my own perspective. Um, and I guess my role at TFGM has enabled me to think about, I guess, a bit more strategically about the role of streets in a big, busy urban conurbation like Greater Manchester. Uh, and I've certainly been very influenced by um, a lot of the work that Peter's been involved in around movement and place. Um, and also the kind of healthy streets agenda and completely reframing how we think of streets from kind of corridors that are all about movement to, to um, places which really shape the urban environment and people's health and well-being. Um, and that very much influenced our thinking in Greater Manchester um, when we were developing our streets rule um, strategy. And now a big programme of um, infrastructure enhancements and street upgrades right across the conurbation. Um, so that's kind of how I got into this agenda and the things that we've been working on more recently. Um, but it'd be great to hear maybe from you first, Peter, about um, how you've got involved in streets and where your interest lies. Yeah, thanks, Nicola. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, several decades ago, um, when I was at Oxford University, we did a project for the Department of Transport on traffic signing and traffic regulation. Did people understand what traffic signs were? Um, and what came out of that was... Um, in terms of their behaviour, they weren't just influenced by the sign, they were influenced by the street environment. Certain streets actually discouraged them from behaving in certain ways and others where 
parking was restricted, there was so much space, I thought, why shouldn't I park here? So I began to realise the psychology of the street space is quite important in uh, the way people behave in streets, what they think about streets and so on. And then, as you say, about 15 years ago, we did an EU project on arterial streets and sustainability, and that's where the um, link or movement in place idea came from. And then, as um, John mentioned recently, we finished an EU project on road space allocation, trying to come up with processes that would enable solutions in those difficult situations where there's lots of competing demands. Can we find an acceptable and, and efficient solution? So, and, and also, you know, as soon as you go out your front door, you're looking at streets. It's just fascinating, really. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. What about you, John? Yeah, um, it's hard to, hard to put a finger on it, actually, to be honest. Um, I think for me, it's just it kind of grew on me. Um, so I'm a traffic engineer by background, and not that everything's my fault, you know, and a transport planner. And I was working in that role. And then I joined an urban design consultancy. And it was just as I started working, I just started to think about these amazing things that are streets that I had thought previously, and I think many people still do in our field, as a quite a technical environment. We just need to solve some problems. But working with my urban design colleagues, you just developed this understanding, which I guess I kind of had had, but you started to realize this is a job to, to think about, well, there's so much more to life in streets. And I think one of the things that struck me about this, I've got, because I've tried to find them and buy them, I got four different um, albums, actually, and songs entitled Street Life. And there isn't one called Road Life um, for obvious reasons. And, and it's, it's that kind of thing of streets are fascinating. And I got more fascinated in it. I've, I read a lot, look at films and, and just see the role of streets in popular culture. And they just seem to me to be where we live and move and have our being, to quote a phrase. And it's it's... It's the potential of streets to be these amazing places, which wonderfully we let everybody use, which is a problem and, and also just one of their, their best characteristics. And it's the challenge of them, uh, the, the potential of them and the opportunity we have to make them better for people in all the ways that they can serve us that, that fascinates me about them. And then, of course, if I'm fascinated streets generally, I'm obviously interested in what the future of these are and how we can make sure that the opportunities that arise to do something different are harnessed in ways that enable streets to still be these wonderful places and efficient, you know, it is, and, and, and making sure that we don't misstep and potentially start applying technologies or allowing disruption to happen that we can't effectively or don't effectively control. That means, again, we might go back to streets just being able to do one or two of the many things we require of them. That's basically it. Brilliant. Thank you both. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're all transport professionals, but actually our responses are much more about how, how streets shape people's lives and, and, and the kind of urban environment, which is, which is interesting, actually. I don't think any of you mentioned any modes of transport in your <laughs> responses. <laughs> Um, so obviously one of the big challenges we all face is kind of the huge range of competing demands across across all the different streets that, that we might have to deal with. How how well do you think we as professionals deal with those competing demands and, and what do you think could be done better to kind of reconcile, particularly where you, you can't physically fit all the different demands that are out there? Um, I don't know, Peter, do you want to pick that one up? Because that's very much yeah. been the focus of some of your project yeah. work, yeah. isn't it? Okay, thank you. Well, two things. First, in terms of user needs, I think we're aware of some of them more than others. So typically, um, historically, motoring has been very important. We're very aware of freight and so on. But there's been much less attention to streets as places uh, and the importance of street activities and placemaking. And, and that's still often not really taken into account. And yet that's why we go to streets, because they provide exciting uh, destinations. And the other thing um, that I think is a bit of a blind spot as well is, is trades and servicing activities that, um, I mean, two thirds of new vans that are purchased are not for deliveries, they're for tradespeople and so on. And we depend on plumbers, electricians, people sorting out broadband, whatever. Um, and we see them all around the city. Um, but actually, we don't really have a, a, a way of recognising that and regulating for it. People at the curb are either parking, in which case they leave the car and we persuade them that they don't need a car there at all, or they're loading, in which case they have to be in and out every two minutes. But the idea you might need to be there with your tools and materials for three hours or something at the curbside, there isn't that recognition. So I, th I think on the one hand, I don't think we, fu we fully 
take into account the range of user needs. On the other hand, I think we can become more skillful in the way that we deal with them. Um, and the streets are very busy, intense places, but there's quite a lot of flexibility. Um, you know, very simply, we, we can double up in two different ways. We can use the same space for more than one purpose. So, for example, bus, bus lanes also being cycle lanes, for example, but also at different times of day, we can use things for different purposes. Obviously, we have peak period bus lanes, off-peak parking, loading, or increasingly in some places where they recognise the importance of place and they're widening footways, like, uh, like Camden Market. Um, they're actually having a wide footway, but allowing loading up to 10 o'clock in the morning on the footway when there are very few customers. So I think if, if a bit more sophisticated in how we use the space and, and uh, both in terms of shared use, but also using the space differently at different times of day, I think we can squeeze a lot more out of what we've got. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. And John, what's been your experience of managing competing demands? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think one of the issues we struggle with is management. We, we've actually, the Man of the Streets in 2007 gave us a really good, sort of made us start to think differently, really put this idea of streets as, as places on our agenda. Although, interestingly enough, it didn't do anything to tell us really what place meant which was interesting, um, and it's one of the things we're working at, one of the things I expect that the new Manifold Streets, which hopefully will be out in a, a month or two, hopefully the end of this year, will, will address. But the idea of management is, because, and, and I've seen two sorts of approaches to this broadly. One is that, I, well, I'm seriously, I'm involved in the cycle scheme, and we're just going to get the cycle scheme in, and everything has to move to the side. Or, of course, it might be bus priority, or historically, we just need to keep the traffic moving, or it might even be pedestrianisation. So it's that we deal with these, these really complex environments with sort of one mode or one interest at a time. And sort of just because that's not, what we're being asked to think of at the moment, we we put everything else to one side. So we can streets can suffer from too much of a focus on one aspect uh, to the detriment of the others. Uh, the other aspect is, is the problem we, we can have is actually we're aware of all these uses. As Peter's described, there are many uses that we are not familiar with at all, actually. But we, we if we were asked, we might think of them, but we don't. And so what we tend to do is just to hope for the best. And, and that doesn't work out terribly well either, because although we might know that this street needs to be used in, in a variety of different ways for movement and for access, as Peter says, maybe for parking, maybe for loading, maybe for different types of loading and waiting buses and good and so on, we, we really struggle and we don't. It's hard, actually. What exactly are those demands? And so the idea of actually how do you, they won't all fit. There's a, you know, it's quite easy to talk about balance but that balance isn't about, well, OK, we're going to give 20% of the space to them, 20% to them, 20 of our top five users. That's not how it works out. And what we often struggle with is we just don't know quite what we're designing or managing for. We don't know the demands. I've always been struck when Transport for London was doing their curbside loading guidance a few years ago, their second version of that. You know, they realised that they could ask all the frontages, even if they could speak to them, what their demands for access and to loading were. And they didn't know themselves because they forgot about the, the plumber, the bloke who came to fix the fridge. They got most of their major deliveries perhaps in mind, but all the minor ones, the emergencies, and, and also the demands created by their own staff for, for that, just for issues of deliveries and, and curbside access. And I think, so we've struggled because we've always found it hard to calibrate what the demands are that we're trying to accommodate. And then you tend to be pray to things like, for example, council members saying, well, if you've got any spare space, put some stop and shop parking, because that's what the traders are shouting for. And we don't really know, ultimately, I suppose what I'm saying, we've struggled to work out how, what our demands are and how we prioritise them. And that means might mean some users are required to be excluded or provided for elsewhere than, than where you are at the moment. And it's to try and develop some thinking around that that I, I guess um, Johnson, uh, UTG commissioned the paper that I just wrote. So just trying to enable us to or prompt us to think, OK, how do we find a framework for more effectively trying to manage the huge number of demands on streets that we have, rather than sort of hoping it'll go well or ignoring the problem? Can I pick up on a couple of John's points? Is that okay? Yeah, please do. Um, yeah. An example near us, I won't name the particular street, where there was a major redesign of the street done, quite a lot of money spent on making it very nice. 
Um, there's an on-street, uh, sorry, on-footway loading bay outside of Marks and Spencers, but it's laid out for a rigid vehicle, and they always bring an Arctic. So the Arctic is always overhanging, and you think, well, perhaps mm. you know, if, if people actually talk and understood what the needs of things were, we could get those things right. Two other quick points. Um, we, as part of the MORG project, we did a very extensive review of, of guidance about uh, street design. And as you say, the really excellent guides on cycling in particular, walking, buses, loading, whatever, but nothing really that looks at the street as a whole, which, as you say, is, is really the challenge. And one thing we haven't mentioned is uh, we don't observe very well what's on the street, all the details of the different users. But, of course, there are people who are not on the street. And it's the classic thing. And if the environment is not very attractive, some people, maybe certain disability groups, actually feel inhibited from going there. So we almost need to go beyond observing who's there and think, are we actually, by the current design, are we excluding other users as well? Mm. Now, it's interesting you both sort of picked up on the tendency to focus on single issues or and I, was, I was sort of mulling on what, what drives that. And I think from my perspective, there are quite a few factors. Sometimes it's funding, so we might get funding to deliver an active travel scheme, for example. But then how do you provide for buses, for freight, for all the other movements on, on that street? Sometimes I think there are institutional barriers. You've got different teams responsible for different different modes. How do you bring to get them together? You've got the challenge of bringing different stakeholder groups together who will all think that they're <laughs> that, that the issue they're representing is most important. Have you got any thoughts about how maybe how we scope um, improvements that we're making to the street to um, to avoid um, falling into that trap of focusing on, on single issues. Yeah, I think, I think to be honest, recognition, that one of the problems can be is that, you know, we just think about probably people who work for you, Nicola, and, and others, it's that one of the things is, is that it's quite comfortable to focus on one thing as a professional. Mm -hmm. And as you say, if you talk about interest groups, they're not obliged to think about anything but the interest they've got. And, and so if you're going to stakeholders, you know, you, you, you might hear around the table if you have that, well, this is what we need, this is what we need, this is what we need. And I think there's only one way to try and resolve that is to, is to firstly recognise it doesn't all fit. Um, I often use, and it's, it's an obvious thing to use, really, most streets, even, even just outside here, if you live in a perfectly ordinary residential street, you'll find there's probably not quite enough space for the stuff that's going on that's to do with deliveries and so forth, but also parking and one or two other things and play and 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 cycle parking and all those sorts of things it, it's it, there needs to be a recognition that actually won't all fit in any given location and therefore what's your strategy for thinking about okay what what if if not if that can't happen here because we've got priorities for these others where can it happen? Because you can't just push it aside, so to speak. And that's often one of the things, and we're quite familiar with that in the context of cycling. You think, well, we need to have cycling on this on this main street here, for example. Oh, it won't fit because of that. And sometimes there are good reasons. But then to suggest that, well, it's just going to have to follow some wiggly route, a very hard to follow route on roads where streets that people don't really want to be. We have to think harder than that. And I, and I, and I suppose I come back to this idea of we need to be developing strategies that embrace all of these things, because until we have that, I mean, it's worthwhile thinking about something that I said in the paper, hadn't really covered me. Most of the problems in streets are relate to, or the challenges we have with streets relate to the interaction at the curbside. You know, people trying to cross, people trying to park, people coming to the curbside from the footway side or from the other side. Those are some of the problems, but we don't really, nobody's responsible for it. If you look at a local authority, nobody has responsibility, as Peter was saying, for streets or the curbside. You know, probably the people you think might be able to just parking enforcement, perhaps that's about it. You know, and you think, right, we need to work out. Uh, probably on an area by basis, there's no reason why my take would be you couldn't have a curbside or a street strategy. I know the government's thinking of requiring local authorities to, uh, through local transport plans, to have. Um, strategies for EV charging. Well, that's just one dimension of what might or might or should or shouldn't happen at the curbside. Mm. And you think, well, actually, EV charging strategies would that's okay. You need to have a strategy for that, but why isn't that? Shouldn't that be part of a wider strategy? Just so you're consciously thinking about the need to prioritise and work out what you can do with the things that aren't. And that I think is a good framework for engaging with any kind of stakeholders, local stakeholders about, you know, even things like low traffic neighbourhoods. Well, what's the street for? What needs to happen? What 
also within the LTM debate, it can get really you know, obsessed by the traffic management measures. What else is good for your neighbourhood that would, you know, that, that, that's missing? Just down to the little details of ponding, crossing, you know, planting, footway parking that gets in the way that makes things dangerous. It just to have an actual strategy that recognises the complexity and work and, and, and it's a framework for thinking in any given area, how do we rationally balance this stuff? As I said before, rather than just hoping it works or listening to the loudest voices, uh, even if those loud voices have, have every right to say and are saying an important and positive thing, we need a strategy to make sure we, we do think about the things that could easily be forgotten about, I think. Sorry, Peter. That's great. Thank you, John. Actually, Peter, I was just going to just sort of expanding on, on that. You've done a lot of work in terms of coming up with some practical solutions for how you deal with some of these conflicts, both uh, sort of at the curbside and sort mm -hmm. of on the main carriageway. And I think you've identified sort of technology solutions as well and, and thinking about how you can manage those things differently, maybe at different times of the day or the week. Are, are, there, are there any things that you've come across in your work that you think you know, more authorities should be should be looking at and how you manage that, that, that space. Yeah, I'll just answer a little bit John's thing as well, if I may. Um, there are so many things on the street where it's obvious that things are not joined up. So one of the ones, one of my favourite um, hates is, is the fact, if you look on major arterial roads into cities with bus routes, um, often they've got a guard running all the way down the middle of the road and there's a bus stop bay on one side, one opposite, and there's no obvious crossing point for pedestrians. Mm -hmm. and you think, how can you design a bus route with bus stops and not think about how, you know, somebody's got to cross the road in one direction or the other. Um, and, and those simple things seem to get missed. I mean, I, I run um, an RMSC course. I have a module on urban street planning and design. And, and nowadays, it, I mean, compared with even five or ten, five years ago, there's so much information available online. So the students can get information on accident statistics, traffic delays, um, bus loadings, all sorts of things. And so they, we, we choose a particular street. They, they pull it all together. And, and then I say, OK, fine. Now we're going to go out and spend three hours looking at the street. Um, and I think that observation is really important. And it really, they think they've learned it all from the data they can get off uh, you know, online. Then they go and see the street uh, and I get them to record what they see and, and they get a totally different perspective. So I think there's no substitute for actually going out there and just looking at what's going on. I think that really enriches and that's really important. I mean, to, ask your que uh, to answer your question, we are, and you, you hinted at this with the LTNs, we are, are getting into much more contentious spaces now. Um, in terms of things that we're trying to achieve. And, and I really think we have to do that with, with stronger public engagement. Um, and uh, an example I experienced some years ago in the West Midlands, the relevant local authority had got consultants to design a red route on that particular corridor through a town centre. And there was a huge outcry and there was a local television radio campaign uh, and the whole thing got dropped, the politicians got rid of us, dropped the whole thing. And then a couple of years later, we were doing some work in that part of the West Midlands. And I mentioned, well, why don't we try something much more co-creative, as it were? So we just put together a very simple, a bit like almost a planning for real thing. We had a, a plan of the street at, at 1 to 200. And we had little blocks and acetates representing parking bays, loading bays, pedestrian crossings. And we got together with the local community, including the business people that had strongly objected to the previous scheme. Um, and they were very suspicious to begin with. But then we got going, we came up with some designs and so on. Um, that, that sort of resolved to people's satisfaction the, the competing demands. And I said to the guy who led the original campaign, I said, well, obviously, you know, you, you became quite uh, notorious. Oh, yeah, he said, we have lots of TV courage. I said, well, they'll be after you again. Oh, yeah, they'll be after us again. I said, well, will you support it this time? You didn't last time. Oh, no, it's our team now. He said, not the councils, we'll support it. Um, and, and therefore, I think that can be very important, um, that sort of thing. And then on the technology side, I think there, there are two things, aren't there? One is... The greater availability of data means that we can get a better technical understanding of what's happening on the street and also perhaps recognise that things vary a lot more from day to day. And particularly since COVID, you know, we, we, we know that, um, well, certainly in London, I'm not sure in Manchester, but the Friday, the new Friday night is the Thursday night now. That's the night that really gets packed in town centres and there's more day to day variation. And I think when space is very tight, maybe we need to be flex flexible in the way that we pick that up. That raises the question then about how we get that across. And I'm actually at the moment in um, UCL's laboratory in East London called Pearl, where they're able to simulate outside outdoor environments. Did some work last year 
comparing LED road signs and road markings with the actual physical ones and talking to people about whether they thought they were better or, or whatever and how you might use them to be able to use space more flexibly. Um, so I think there are some technical help on the side of better data, but also potentially using technology to help us use that space more efficiently and flexibly. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. John, it'd be great to get maybe some of your experiences of how you deal with that, what seems like inevitable conflict that you often get when you're trying to re redesign or repurpose streets. Have you got any good examples of how you sort of ta tackled that and taken people with you? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's a very interesting point that Peter made, which is about that chap who said, uh, oh, it's our scheme, not the council scheme. Really sadly, if I could do like kind of one thing in the field of work that we, we, we work in, it would be probably working with the uh, the government association and it's the idea of our scheme not their scheme and they're going on and saying the, the sad thing is the starting point for many people including local mps let's be honest about their local authority is there to blame for almost anything and and it's it's a real it's a real problem that we have that if the council suggests something there's you know from from far too many people there's that sense of oh, the council and therefore, we're already not exactly mistrustful. We're not expecting much because there's a dialogue out there, especially on Facebook and next door and your WhatsApp groups of, oh, this has gone wrong, that's gone. It's like it's like the I've often said it's like, like you're um, a member of the family who looks after an aged aunt and gets blamed because when the things don't go well and then the, the, the other parts of the family who work, who, who just come along once a month with the kids and it's fun time. They don't do any of the hard work, but they get all the credit. <laughs> And there's a problem with local authorities like that. So I think one of the key things to do, and it's really hard, and I know this happened a lot with low traffic neighborhoods, especially under the pressures that everybody was working on during the, the pandemic, is we're traffic engineers, right? We're transport planners. We're, where, where do we, we, we're not people who understand behavior change terribly well necessarily. And we get on the back foot by thinking, well, legally, we're just, we just have to, you know, we can all have to do is write a letter saying, by the way, we're going to stop rat running in your streets and you're going to thank us for it almost. So it's, it's the idea of developing, if I dare say, of, of using much greater emotional intelligence and thinking, what if you're essentially asking people, and this is a, the challenge that happens a lot, and it could happen in the context of low traffic neighborhoods with local residents, it could also happen obviously in the context of busy things with, with traders or others who've got very fixed views, it's this idea, if you start by sort of implying that we know what's good for you, even if you do, it's never a good start. Mm. Um, it's, and it's not necessarily about accusing people of things. I've, I've, I've increasingly find myself using the phrase that, you know, nobody changes their mind at the point of a finger. You know, that sense of even if they know that what you're saying is sensible or it might be or common sense, if it comes with some kind of criticism of what they're doing at the moment, people aren't going to hear your message because they, they're fixating on the messenger. And I think it's, 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 it's really important that we start and it comes back to some of the stuff that Peter was saying. And it's harder because we're not used to resource and resources are tight line, which is you do have to start by working with people, potentially in the context of strategies like I've spoken, which is. So how do we do this here? What works? What doesn't work? You know, and that sense that, you know, Michael Gove is famous for saying people have had enough of experts. I think what he meant, actually, although I'm sure he meant to grab a headline as well, was actually people are fed up being told what to do. And so we have to work out with people. And Pete's mentioned um, co-creation, co-design. I, I, it sounds like, you know, for many people, perhaps on this call, practitioners think, oh, golly, that sounds like hard work. It's not what I do. We'll get some friends, which is, say, some colleagues or some support, because actually there's a good chance that in the grand scheme of things, that will be more cost effective. So, for example, with many of the LTNs, you didn't spend all that money and time putting in and then just took them out anyway. And you're now two steps back rather than the one forward you hoped you'd be. So I think it, 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 it's, it's, it's about ultimately, I think, recognizing that when you're asking anybody, this could be the members of the public, but also traders and others, to change how they travel or how their goods travel, you are asking them how to change how they live. That's, that's how it is. And you need to, it's really helpful to recognize that. Or you're asking them to, to rethink that perhaps their business model or what they've always assumed about their business model and engage with them on that basis. You know, and actually, because how do we make things better rather than here's a scheme and we're going to do it and we hope you like it? Yeah, and I think there is sometimes a, um, 
a sense that we can get this scheme delivered more quickly if we just, you know, fast track some of the engagement stages, which can be a bit painful. But it always, you always come unstuck, don't you, further down, down the line. I think, I think um, that's a lesson. Yeah. I think, I think you yeah. do. Yeah. Can I pick Have up? You, on, sorry. Yes, can I pick First of all, uh, data collection. I mean, there's this thing, citizen science nowadays, where you know a lot of local people um, actually collect data on air pollution, all sorts of things. And I think not only is that an extra source of data, but, but people have more confidence in data collected by themselves. I was doing a study in West Sussex some years ago um, where the local villagers were complaining that they needed a bypass because there were HGVs going through all day. And the council said, no, no, we've done a survey. There's only four or five a day. And they didn't believe it. So we did a little survey. And the parishioners went out, did the survey themselves, came back to a village meeting. Village meeting says all these HGVs. And the local people said, no, we aren't there two days. There's only three each day. Because they said that, that was then accepted. But it wasn't accepted when the council said it. Um, so I think finding ways to involve people. The second thing I'd say, and, and I think this is quite significant, is that where we have worked in this sort of co-design way, it changes the role of the engineer. And, and engineers, in my experience, often are quite nervous about having close contact with the public because their only experience of the public is people sending in emails or Twitter or phoning up and complaining about something. So the idea is you're dealing with a very negative audience. And to make this co-design work, certainly in my experience, the engineer has to give up authority which is quite difficult. You know, you're trained, you say, you know best, you know what the rules are, et cetera. But to make it work, you have to give up authority. And then you give people the opportunity to explore and they realize how complicated it is and they then ask the engineer for advice. So the engineer loses authority but gains respect. And actually that's an interesting transition, but actually it's much more powerful because then he's seen as being aligned with the community rather than, as you say, opposed to the community. And these changes can be quite subtle, but quite important. And the third thing very quickly, if we're talking about changes or restraint, I think there always has to be a better reason. I mean, I remember 20 or 30 years ago when some local authorities decided to close a street experimentally, they stick, you know, stick a dozen tyres at each end of the road and just leave it there. And of course, people go, well, can't I drive down there? There's a road, nothing's happening. But if when you close it, you also then put in uh, street furniture or kids' playground, you know, if you can see there's a better alternative use, then I think that makes it easier. So it's not so much negative, it's saying we found a better use for that space. So I think it's, it's partly how you think about the whole, how you design it and how you frame it. Brilliant, that's great. So, it's, I mean, it feels like there's quite a bit around skill sets and making sure we've got people with those 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 skills and probably a, you know, a more open mindset attitude to, to going out and having those conversations early, uh, which I think we all know, but it's <laughs> in practice that can be quite challenging. So I think it's about sort of pushing ourselves. I, th I think I just add, add Nicola on that, and I'm sure you're fully aware of that. One of the problems I think that practitioners will have in this field, the engineers and others that Peter's just referred to is, they anticipate what they're going to find if they suggest this. It's, it, it's, it's yeah. taking a little bit out of their comfort zones anyway, and they anticipate that when they suggest this, somebody's just gonna say, we haven't got the time, or they're not gonna get member support. Because it seems like a bit much or too much. Even this might even be in councils where they you've got all the policy about really being committed to listening to communities and so forth. Because we haven't tended to do this because there hasn't been a resource cost on these kinds of projects to date now. There's a danger that they anticipate that actually and find that their anticipations are often correct. That when they do say we need to do this differently, we need to take a little bit longer, this will be better in the long run. The programs they're working to, perhaps the funding. The envelopes they're working within and all that kind of thing just you know that the, the, it struggles to take these non-technical but increasingly recognizing really important things which i suppose comes back just to this whole idea we talking about it right at the beginning which is these streets are streets are hugely complex and the idea that even if you're sure you've got a really good thing that that is the best thing to do or the right thing to do, the only thing you could do here, and also the issues of concept. It's the more we recognize the complexity and actually roll with it, rather than trying to simplify it, and it helps to have those frameworks I've spoken about. When we recognize that, it becomes more obvious that we can't just design the scheme and plonk it in and hope it'll work. It may not, apart from it, be the best thing because we haven't engaged well enough. I think we have to kind of expect and almost plan for that sort of the messiness that comes and the yes, kind of yeah. nature of designing. A good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, rather than it just assuming it's all going to be nice and linear and we're going to move smoothly through, you know, st stages of scheme development. I think we need to be more creative as well, um, more imaginative and more creative in the way we look at space. Um, 
And uh, for example, this EU project we're just doing, one of my colleagues put together a little online, online library resource that identifies 210 different elements you might introduce into the street to try and deal with particular needs that you have, some of which will be quite familiar, some of which won't be familiar. And also to encourage people to look at the, the space more flexibly, you know, as we talked about already, the idea that if you widen a footway at certain times, that might be where you do the parking and loading rather than it having to be on the carriageway. I think just thinking more flexibly. And I think the new manual for streets, as I understand it, um, is separating the physical layer of the street. This is the footway. This is the carriageway from what's the function of the street. Where are we going to provide vehicle movement? Where are we providing pedestrian movement? Where are we providing for um, sort of curbside type street activities? And, you know, in a boulevard, you might have your main pedestrian movement in a tree line walk down the centre of the street. It doesn't always have to be on the edge necessarily. So I think just thinking more creatively and flexibly, I think, would get us some way. And I think that that's going to be even more important, isn't it, as new modes, new demands mm. emerge. I don't know if, if either of you've got any thoughts about that. We've you know we've got new micro mobility modes appearing. Yeah, we've well, got more demand uh, for deliveries and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think one one of the things we we were recommending in, in our project was that at the moment the, the local authority is always on the back foot. Somebody comes along, I've invented an e-scooter, and everybody's scrambling to think, well, how, how do we accommodate those? Um, and of course, I think a growing problem now is, is e-cargo bikes, not the bikes themselves, but they're getting bigger and bigger. And yeah. some of them are not fitting into cycle lanes. And local authorities every five years can't go and redesign all the cycle lanes. So what, what we were suggesting was we ought to define different zones. And the obvious ones would be the, the sort of footway zone, the, the carriageway zone, and then the, the sort of curbside zone, and actually define if you like, performance criteria for what you would allow on those. So if it's on the footway, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be doing more than five miles an hour or whatever it might be. If it's in a cycle lane, it shouldn't be doing more than this speed, but it shouldn't be more than this weight or size. So that then rather than the local authority was playing catch up, we can have design standards that we know will meet those performance criteria. And if somebody comes up with a new mode, they will know that to get it approved, it will have to fit with one of those performance criteria. And then I think we can be on the front foot rather than the back foot. Brilliant. Sorry. I'm I'm going to move us on actually because I'm I'm having a look at the Q and A and there's loads of great questions in there and I don't want to run out of time to ask and um, ask a few of those. Um, so uh, got a question from um, uh, from Jake Thrush um, who's asking about some of the challenges of designing uh, for buses and for cyclists. Um, and I guess we've you know we've had government guidance on both of these topics over the last year or so, which suggests we need to be providing more space <laughs> for active travel and for buses. Um, is there a tension there? Um, and any um, any advice that we can give to us? Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> my word is attention. Yeah. Um, Jake, Jake, you'll know particularly well some streets between Birmingham and uh, and, uh, and Smethwick that uh, where that's the case, and I think what you mentioned it, Nicola. Actually, it's something that that I'm you know obviously had to touch upon in the paper I just published for UTG, which is is you've got bus back better, better, and that's great. And there's something in it about think about other modes, and then you've got local transport note 120, and you've also got um, gear change, and there's, you know, we need to think about the others, but actually, and this is the, the need to develop strategies, they don't help you at all in working out what you do when, and you'll know perfectly well that actually when you're in the room talking about bus priority, for example, if you've got some cycling colleagues there, they'll say, but what about us? And if you're in the room talking about a new cycling scheme, you'll have a bus colleague going, you know, and, and then arguing about which is which of us is most important, who, you know, how many do we carry and all that sort of stuff. And that, that's all entirely legitimate. And actually, it, it, it's there's a danger. What I was saying earlier about needing to think about this complexity that, 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 that we all need to be generalists. Absolutely not. What we need is people who are really good at understanding what the requirements of providing good bus services for and people who are really good at understanding that you know what a good cycle facility looks like so that when you're squeezing and pushing and tight you realize what well, you can't don't you can't just pretend that'll work anymore because that's all the space you've got but it implies some really really challenging thinking about well what gives and what doesn't 
and, and I should say it's fairly obvious, obviously, the key thing we've really struggled with giving. So you basically get your active modes and public transport squabbling with one another while because we, we, the traffic must keep moving. Right. And, and of course, it must to some extent. And I'm thinking some of your KRN routes, uh, Jake, in the West Midlands, you know, they're, 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 they're challenging. And, and if they're for that, but this is that without a strategy, I suppose the two things about having a thoughtful strategy is, the, the buses have to run here. They're incredibly important. This is where they're going to go. There's no option. There's no room to do, you know, even if we can squeeze the traffic a little bit, even if we've got the buses there, there's a big, wide carriageway lane, that is at, which means there's nothing for cycling. But what that should do then is not to say, well, it can't happen here. It should point you to things, well, so where will you provide a the best possible cycling facilities that you can? And then and you're not arguing about, well, the buses have to be here because we carry this many people and it's more than they're ever going to cycle, blah, blah, blah. It's about, you know, we, it's accepting that. And even if you grow cycling a lot, where will that go? So that actually the facilities you've got will help grow cycling because they're good enough. And sometimes these decisions are really, really hard. And, and, and one of the one of the things that's happened, which is really positive recently in that regard, is there is now kind of proper money for active travel and cycling. Right. It's not the same size as the National Road Building Programme. And so under those sorts of circumstances, you know, through active travel, England is at the moment there is money for really serious, expensive schemes. It might be a bridge or it might even be land purchase, all of that sort of stuff. We have to think we've always thought about that for other modes. We yeah. need to take if we, and well, so we need to think about it for modes as a whole, and and so yes, there are there are obvious challenges, but what we need is a f proper framework for making sure that we rise to all of them rather than just letting one win and just oh, tough luck on the other one, frankly. Can I just pick up on that? I mean, the thing about the bus stops and the interaction between buses and cycles is obviously one of the, the tough ones to try and deal with. And, you know, most of the time there's two options. One is you have a cycle lane next to the curb and then the buses pull across uh, to the bus stop or you have the, the, the segregated thing with the sort of floating bus stop, which causes its problems and concerns about people with disabilities and so on. Um, and the, but there is a third possibility, which which doesn't happen very much, although it does happen in Nantes, for example, where you put the cycle lanes in the middle of the road. Now, when I've talked to cycling groups about that, everybody's very nervous to say, well, that's really dangerous. But I'm not sure that's true, because if you're next to the curb, you've always got the risk um, of a parked car or something, somebody opening the door. You've got this dooring issue and you've got this thing about taxis pulling over, whatever. If you're in the centre, you don't have any of that. And in fact, certainly as an occasional car driver, Maybe it's just me. I find if I look to the right, I can see much more clearly what's on my right-hand side than on my left-hand side. So in that sense, if there's a cyclist there, I'm more likely to see them. I won't have a blind spot in the same way as on my left-hand side. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that's universally, but there might be some cases where actually that provides a safer and, and, and a solution and a, a better flow for cyclists and at the same time avoids the problem of the interaction with the curb and the various dangers that that has. So I think it's obviously it's context specific, but I think we just need to be much more creative about looking at things. Brilliant. Thank you both. Um, Becky Fuller from UTG has put a couple of great questions in about engagement. One was about how we might involve children, young people um, in um, in designing streets um, and also whether there's you know, a clear business case for co-creation, even though it might take a bit a bit longer in the short term. Um, can we can we provide evidence to show that it results in better, more accepted solutions um, that deliver better value for money in the long term? So any any thoughts from either of you on uh, on those questions? I, I suspect that the the evidence for the positive side of the business case for co-creation is can be quite could be quite challenging. Um, but what you can do, we've got lots of really exciting evidence that how it how it doesn't work. Recently, in other words, we can see the costs of not having done it yeah. effectively. And, and and I also would say, actually, in terms of business case, you know, very often we're talking about schemes that themselves, you know, even if you do, it's, it's perhaps sometimes more time in the process and the willingness, I think, of, 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 of professionals who aren't involved in this to, to, go, to, to go into that field. It's like Peter has said, you know, oh, we don't, oh, we, every time we go into to, 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 to a room with local people, they just shout at us. And, and you can understand 
a why they should feel that, but possibly the reasons why people got used to shouting at them. And so sometimes it's time, not just cost, but whatever you do in terms of cost, it's still going to be really, really small relative to the cost of most schemes that you're doing. And so it shouldn't add much to the business case. But also you will find in many authorities, it's it's just really obviously the, the best thing to do. And actually, there will be lots of authorities that have, as I've said before, commitments to co-creation and listening to, to people. So the challenge is then so is actually just getting used to, well, what does that mean? And so, you know, that question about, well, how do we talk to young people is a really good one, which is, so if we're just going to talk to you know, grown-ups, Right, the usual suspects. Firstly, we need to do that so differently to how we've done it beforehand, especially how do we talk to people who don't show up to when we normally have a meeting in a, in a, in a library or a church hall with plastic chairs in an evening kind of thing. How do we, there's a real challenge there how we get, and that's probably where there's, there's most challenge. I'll, I'll just cite a particular example. There's a, a thing in, in London, in, in West London, there's a group called Let's Go Southall that has, that's, that's worked, that's, Actually, it's funded partly by um, I think it's British Cycling, but it's 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 sort of staffed by uh, council officers and, and and others, and the whole point is there just to, to they are as it were they're from that community. It's a, it's a, it's a largely Asian community, but that's quite diverse in its own right. But they're from there, and I've seen them at work, and they're just brilliant at just talking to people in ways that I couldn't possibly. They have not they don't have anything like my technical knowledge. But that's irrelevant at the in terms of some of the questions they're asking. So I suspect the challenge for most local authorities is, and actually this is probably good news to engineers who don't want to be in those rooms quite so much. We've been at some of those events and actually we're just sitting there in the background if in case there are some technical questions that, that, that need asking. But the actual engagement with people is much more on their terms. We're, we're from here too. We're, we know some of your problems. And of course, especially in the context of streets, you'll find that a huge number. Of, I remember Matthew Carmota and Peter doing some, some work on this a long time ago, which is if you ask people about streets, their top priorities are that they don't trip over, that there's no dog mess, that there's this. And it, when you get them the things that we love about street design, they're so far down their list of priorities. They're just about basic safety and security issues. And actually, you need to hear that. And, 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 and you're not going to if you, if you, if you start with a kind of our technical approach. So perhaps the thing that local authorities need to do here is, is to really invest in that side of the work they do, communications and engagement, as, 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 as not as an add-on, but as something they, they're really familiar with. I've been working with a couple of London boroughs on this recently, and there's a recognition that it isn't just about bolting on a little bit. Let's try and do better, us technical folk is council-wide we need to be better. We're committed to doing this and we've sort of forgotten that all that policy needs to end up in some kind of resource allocation with people who are properly skilled to do this. And, and then you can change, going back to again something that Peter said earlier, change it completely. And the specific question that Becky asked about engaging with children, it's it's on the agenda all the time. And, and But that's hard, right? Because it, it's, well, what can we take from what children might say? How do we channel that? Because they're not serious, obviously. They want to play. Of course they want to play. We can't do that. But actually, let's let them play. And what? how does that, how does that work out? And how also do you, you know, my, my personal take on that particular thing is, you need you you, you it's, it's talking to children with their parents at the same time and and so they're hearing one another in different ways and that can be facilitated by schools but of course schools are under time pressures and all that kind of thing so but we have to i suppose ultimately we need to have a i hate to use the phrase but almost like a paradigm shift on how we go about this but through a recognition this will lead to better outcomes it really will um, that sense that we have to do, if we do it differently, it will be better and it's not purely technical. Brilliant. Um, I'm actually, oh, sorry, Peter, I was going to move us on, but did you want to come in on that one? Oh, well, you go first, Tom. No, I, well, I was going to suggest we've got quite a few questions about designing residential streets. So I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes on that before we sort of come to the end of the conversation. So we've had um, some suggestions around, you know, should we separate things like parking from um, from individual houses? Um, how do we move away from, I suppose, more traditional design guidance, which may be um, 
planning officers feel, feel safer with and understand the kind of maintenance requirements and all of those things. Um, so how do we get a more progressive approach to, to residential streets that, um, that kind of get the buy-in of, um, of people making, making decisions about those, those developers? Um, and I guess also how do we think about what might be needed in future in residential streets that may be, that, you know, in terms of how we adapt, how we create streets that are more flexible and adaptable to, to future changes? Any thoughts on that, Peter? Do you want to, to start on that? Yeah, I had an MSc student a few years ago using data from, from Kent County Council about how residents reacted to going into new developments. Um, and, you know, the, the attitudes were very different on different developments. Um, mm -hmm. And it was often small things like how deep the front garden was. Um, so somebody could put a car there if somebody was visiting or something, or the availability of trees or direct routes to public transport bus stops or things like that but different estates built around the same time seem to have very very different levels of satisfaction and it's not something that i think really has been investigated that much by by house builders that's my impression anyway but john i'm sure knows a lot more about that i think it's really but i mean I, there's so much at the playback new residential homes and where cars can go and, and you know there's some good guns there's a lot of good lessons about what doesn't work um, especially, you know, that and it's it, it's designing for that, you know, it's especially if the parking's all over there. Well, they're just going to go two wheels up out the front, aren't they? That, that, and you need to be really thoughtful about that. And the way you can deal with that is actually designing out the possibility of parking where you're not intending it should have. I, I'd actually, and that's, to be honest, I think it's relatively easy. I know there are lots of housing developments all over the place. You might say, well, they didn't seem to find it easy. It's gone horribly wrong here. But actually, I think possibly in the same way that we're often, when we talk about housing, especially in the, you know, for example, the sustainability aspects of housing, it's like, oh, what about new stuff? And you think, well, what about the old stock? And I, and I think, you know, what was some of the key problems we've got with, and it comes back partly to the LTNs issue, but just generally is what about parking in, in, in housing areas that have been there for hundreds of years or 50 years or whatever it might be? You know, how can we start changing people's thinking about how we do that? One of the things, again, I touched on the paper, and it's about how the whole thing about how we value the public realm. It's amazing. This is public realm. This is public highway. Yet somehow, if you have a house or a flat or anything, you, it, there's, it's out there that I own that piece of highway right in front of my place. And, and actually, it's, there's, again, there's a, perhaps an, an, a whole new dialogue that local authorities could have in that regard about, you know, asserting their ownership of but the public shared public value of, of the public realm to help people understand that isn't your bit now we know you want to park near where you can and all this sort of stuff but actually it, it's the idea of again through an understanding of the local areas working with local people you know we've got problems in terms of, we've got we've got excessive demand for supply but we also need to provide other things like bike hangers because in the housing we've got here people can't have bikes we want to do that it's just one car also we would like to make these places we want build outs and and, and parklets and, and other things like that you know where more trees can we have a conversation about that but i think it does it comes back to something we've already said which is it's a, it's a really important i think residential streets are overlooked we tend to talk about high streets new different complex things as i said already uh, your own residential street is really is, is really sort of ordinary residential streets are really challenging environments just look where the dpd and dhl and amazon and, and, and unmarked vans go whether they're carrying goods or people as pete peter said before let's have a conversation about that but i have seen very little about that is how do but that has to be on a street by street what are the demands here what would you like kind of basis can you see there's something better yes we sacrificed this but for that um, I, I, I think I, I do think it's a, it's an area that's that's really understudied, and I think probably undervalued. That somehow it'll go away, or we just know there's so much parking we don't want to touch it. The best we can think of is the CPZ, and we're we're out of here. There are opportunities to, as I said earlier, really about this whole sort of healthy neighbourhoods, livable neighbourhoods, low traffic neighbourhoods has got to be more about just some traffic management measures. It's about genuinely engaging with people about how could your street be better, do more of the kind of things you want, whether that's every day or, you know, possibly how we how do we change it so that it's easier to do, you know, special things on, on a more regular occasions. Just two very yeah. quick comments. I mean, one is I think we have to think about designing for very occasional use as well in new development. So 
you know, yeah. we will need removals vans there and potentially a fire engine at some point. So, you know, make sure it's possible for those things to be done. And also one of the things I think worrying recently is that in, in many designs, local authorities are, are knocking out the idea of having trees and things because they're going to have to maintain them. Um, and because money's so tight, they don't want to have that responsibility. So I think to make attractive environments, we need to find ways in which there's a long-term funding stream to actually maintain those environments. Yeah. yeah. So all of that seems to come back to engagement, doesn't it? And uh, I'm just going to give a very quick shout out to some brilliant work that the um, Salford University did for us to actually send researchers into communities and talk to them about the, some of the active neighbourhood schemes we were delivering or planning and actually just spending time with people from all walks of life, just walking around their, their local streets and talking about what, you know, what issues they face on a day to day basis. And that's probably told us more about the sorts of things we should be doing um, and could be doing than, than any other kind of research or evidence that we've developed. So um, I would give a shout out to that if you look on um, Salford University's website and on TFGM's website it's really well really going back to the previous research. point about children I had a PhD student who's just finishing his study looking at um, whether children and parents oh, sorry whether children are happy walking to school and whether carers are happy that they walk on their own or not and how children perceive those street environments and it's often very small things about having a, a tree or a bench or whatever actually it's quite an important landmark for them and so on so I, th I think there's a lot there that we, we're not capturing that we should as you say yeah yeah pavement parking was a huge issue as well yeah um, yeah probably no surprise to either of you two. <laughs> okay so we're coming right to the end um i'll hand back to jonathan shortly but before we do i wanted to end by asking you both what your favorite street is and why and i've been contemplating this question as well and i guess <coughs> from for me, I've been watching how um, my local town centre, Altrincham, has transformed itself over the last 15 years from a very run-down, very, very shabby high street um, and through kind of lots of relocation of services, redevelopment services in the town centre and some really clever street design. It feels like a completely different place and feels um, much more alive, much more vibrant and actually, you know, was able to thrive in a way that I don't think it would have done through COVID uh, because it had some really lovely outdoor spaces that people could could meet and spend time in and um, so that's my sort of local so one of my local streets which um, uh, uh, which I think has has evolved amazingly in a relatively short um, time period so Peter your favourite well, street it's, it's an old example but New Road Brighton I was very impressed with I mean it, it used to be quite a desolate street fast moving traffic they put in the shared surface and so on and, and now the street's being taken over by people there's a park there there's a theater local cafes and things and it really has become a place uh, and, I, and that's one of the biggest transformations i've seen even though it's slightly old now john you, you've seen many more of these i'm sure oh yeah i just I, I've, I've thought about this nicola i really can't it's as you'd think i have loads but what i realized what 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 i what 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 seems to fascinate me is those streets that could be great and aren't yet yeah, and I think, uh, or, or were and could be again. So, because I'm, I'm a Geordie, I, I can't get away from Grey Street in Newcastle, which is just a fabulous. It's got the architecture, but actually, it's a bit of a car park, and they've tried. They've put some cycling measures, and and it's again the idea of listen, what's this for? Let's see the buildings, <laughs> and actually, let's make it easier to walk. So, I think Grey Street, and they're doing some good stuff there, and I think they've got a longer term scheme that's coming in now. So, I'd vote for that. I, I do have this thing about one or two streets. So in, in London, Kingsway and Holland Park Avenue, partly because of how they're built with their wonderful lines of plane trees, they could be fantastic, but a bit there are traffic sewers, um, which, which is the real challenge. So yes, it's those ones I tend to think about, those ones that could, that could be so much better. But I'll, I'll, set, I'll set up a grey street. It's not, and loads of people would say that, but I'm saying it too. Which street would you like to get your hands on? That's what we should have asked you, John. Yeah, well, golly, that's a very long list. But it's, yeah. it's a very long list. And quickly, just one thing on that. One of the things I'm conscious of streets. So I used to love the Champs-Élysées, what they did for it, how it was different from how it had been. And I was there again recently and I've really gone off it again. But what I've gone off it for is because although it's a big street and has lots of yeah, you can still cross it. But actually what I find less attractive about it now is the land uses they have. It's all be, it's become a designer district. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't I've got nothing. There's nothing for me here. You know, it, it, it was this great street, but actually because the land use has changed and, it, and that's a challenge of when you improve streets, the values go up. So you get your high value uses, you, you lose your cafe and you get a Starbucks. 
you know, that's a real challenge. You use your heel bar and get yet another generic, this, that or the other. So that's a, a real thought about better streets. We, you make them better and maybe they'll um, do that. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing as well. There's a brilliant play called Straight Line Crazy about Robert Moses from New York and Jane Jacobs are all familiar with. And there was a reflection on that where the battle that she won with 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 the, from the community beyond Washington Square. Then she was reflecting years later on what Washington Square had become. And it had actually gone away from the community because it was so highly valued, because it was so traffic free. Really interesting challenges we face. Sorry, I'm done. Sorry, Jonathan, we've taken it. <laughs> well, beyond the wire. No, it's um, so much to chew on there. Uh, and so, so uh, thanks so much to Nicola. Peter and John for what was a really fantastic discussion and conversation and I really think that anyone who's got colleagues involved in streets needs to be pointed in the direction of the playback of this event. Five things stood out for me uh, firstly that streets are very complicated places so many demands and potential demands and often we don't know what's going on on those streets particularly for those users that are unfamiliar get forgotten we don't enough know enough about like e-cargo bikes all these vans for tradespeople, occasional uses fire engines removal vans and so on and we just don't have a framework for dealing with it nobody owns the curbside but we need to accept and roll with that complexity and messiness not ignore it or hope that it works itself out the second thing is we need more sophisticated skillful approaches can we use tech to get more varying use of road space at different times of the day i think the third point that came through very strongly we need more emotional intelligence um a powerful phrase from uh, john that people don't change their mind at the point of the finger and peter's examples of locals believing other locals about the number of lorries going through a village rather than the council people need to feel it's their scheme rather than the council doing it to them co-designing uh, and more investment of and mainstreaming within lta's of engagement and communication the fourth thing was we need a broader view of what we want from the streets of the future not get stuck in some of the limited debates which argue has happened about ltns what's the wider wider vision what do people want from their street overall and finally need to be more creative and imaginative streets are fascinating places which everybody can use and in relation to that i think we need to get john dales's uh, streets playlists on the uh, show notes for this event um oh, as, well I have as, one. as well as the links to the work that uh, john and uh, peter have done in this area so we'll get that up on the website for too long I hope you'll be able to join us for Urban Transport Next 16 in November, where our topic will be, this is not a drill, this is the climate emergency, where we'll be discussing what metro areas uh, can practically and concretely do on transport to decarbonise at pace whilst becoming more resilient. But in the meantime, thanks to our fantastic panel and to everyone who's taken part live and to those listening to the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>